Welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories, where we're continuing our series on the 50th anniversary of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 1972. We're doing it 1972 to 2022 to 2024 because there's so many parallels to the great book of probably what we consider the greatest book of campaign exposition and essays ever written. And of course, as always, I'm Christopher Tidmore at our historic studios here on Magazine Street, New Orleans, and the host of this show joining us from very frigid but very beautiful coastal Maine in Portland is the great Curtis Robinson. I'll always follow that with great, and I can tell you, if you are deep into campaign trail books and, uh, and, and Hunter's writing, nice to be up here where it's cold. You know, the night he took the famous car ride with uh, Richard Nixon, and I just found this out this weekend, it was 10 degrees. Really? So it was, it was you know, the, the path to the presidency is supposed to go through uh, you know, frigid New Hampshire. Uh, it's not so much, particularly not for uh, Joe Biden. But we will mark this as the day after the Iowa caucuses. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've been kind of trying to put everything in the back of my head because I knew once I started, I would be like a, uh, a junkie on a binge because it, it was really hard this weekend not to just saturate yourself with politics. It really so was. I have to say, because you probably won't say it about yourself, this turned out almost uh, the way you thought, correct? Yeah, I mean, as much as I hated to see what I thought, it, what, I, what I basically concluded was Trump was going to win Iowa with over 50% of the vote, and Nikki Haley was going to come in third, and it looked for about five minutes like I was going to be wrong, that Nikki Haley was going to surge into second place, and Trump would be close to 50%, but he'd be at 48 and if he was at 48 at least there's an argument of how this could continue. That was going to be the expectation spin, wasn't it? If he, he was. If he had been under 50%, even though what he, he beat Bob Dole's record, Bob Dole's record was a win by Excuse me, 13%? By 13 so points, like, yeah. It's a record-setting win, but it was cold. It was a small turnout. But again, it shows you that, that the Trump voter is going, as, as, as everyone said, I heard it five times, will crawl across broken glass. Apparently. Well, it was, in, in this case, it was sharp ice, you know, so. Uh, but, sharp ice to vote. And so it's, uh, it's and, but he ended up over 50, but not much, over 51% or something. And, yeah. uh, With 99% tabulated, Trump was at 51%, Ron DeSantis at 21.2%, and Nikki Haley at 19.1%. Visek Rasaswamy at 7.7%, and Asia Hutchinson at 1% with 191 votes. By the way, just as a little aside, I thought you might find this interesting. Asia Hutchinson had the biggest bang for his buck of all the candidates. He spent just over $924,000 in Iowa uh, for his 191 votes, or that's $4,838 per vote. In contrast, DeSantis got 23000 420 votes. However, he spent $123 million in Iowa to get that, or 5000 That can be true. It is, is that, true. Do you, think that, do you think that's true? It's it, with, with, with the Super PAC and the ads. Oh, God. I have friends meet buying in Iowa. It was, it was a full employment plan. You realize how hard it oh, is to spend yes, 123 that, I mean, that's, enough, that's enough to bump up the entire economy of that state. It is. He, it, so anyway, and it turned out DeSantis spent $5,251 per vote. Mm. I mean, it's just, 
it was to get to get essentially the expectation is obviously Nikki Haley had to and this is what everybody was saying she had to get in a position where she was beating Ron DeSantis she effectively tied him i mean their their vote counts even though she's at 19 he's at 21 it's they're not actually all that part but that alone the fact that he got in second place keeps him going into New Hampshire which means that Trump is not going to have a unified candidate in New Hampshire. And no matter how good Kristen Nunu, the governor, is, it's, it's going to be very difficult for Nikki Haley to pull out New Hampshire. And then you go to South Carolina, and, um, well, it's her home state, but it's not going to look like her home state when it's over. And, and, and I, I mean, I hated to say this, but I was reading the tea leaves of what was happening, which was, it's Trump's world in the GOP. We just live in it. I mean, it's just, it's... In, in, where he, where Trump prevailed was the fact that he not only won by 20 points in the urban areas, he won college-educated voters by nine points and high school-educated voters by 51. The, the high school-educated voters, I'm not surprised. You and I have made the comparisons to Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Trump is George Wallace in so many different ways, in the rallies and how it appeals, the whole works, the populist message. But he's not supposed to get college-educated voters like that. He did. The Republican... It's a Republican primary, and, and they're already registered Republicans, so they're going to lean that way. And and I, I was listening. I gave full vent over the weekend to uh, Hunter uh, political addiction. And, you know, it was interesting because um, I even found something I'd never listened to before, a Studs Terkel interview with Hunter from 1973, and and Hunter mentioned Wallace in that, even as late as '73, uh, talking about uh, the passion for change, and that Wallace sort of brought up change in um, in that race, and and to some degree, you st- you see Trump, and it's so strange because he was president for four years, and yet he has become to a lot of people of uh, of the change agent. And he's also the FU vote, right? Well, I mean, I found it fascinating. And so there was a precinct captain. There was one of, one of the news services I actually like um, is Scripps Howard. Most people don't realize this. They actually have a 24-hour news channel. And they tend to do a lot of retail journalism. They talk to people on the ground. You know, it's less talking heads and more talking to people. And they started interviewing. They, they went to like, tw- I think it was 23 different caucus sites and interviewed the precinct captains uh, for for Trump, for DeSantis. And Haley, actually, she didn't have one, and that was one of the problems. And we'll talk about how a caucus is structured, why it's different in a second. But they interviewed one of the Trump precinct captains who said, well, why are you supporting Trump? She said, because, you know, I'm, I have uh, health care costs are going up, and I, I can't get my health care coverage, and the corporations are taking care, and I can't get m- certain medications at affordable prices, and this is... And her... The talking points would have been what you would have expected somebody who supports Obama in, in 2008. And she's saying this about Trump. Whether you think it's good, bad, or indifferent, Trump is not running on lowering health care costs. That, that, that's not a platform point of Donald Trump's. But it was interesting that she equated the change on her health care situation, and she went into some detail about it, that Donald Trump would bring down health care costs and he would uh, stand down against the insurance companies. And, it yeah. sh- and, and, and there's, there's unpacking that could be a Rosetta Stone to, to understanding the appeal in some ways. 
My brother-in-law in West Virginia argues from time to time that people who support Trump have more and different experiences with government than people who do not. And if you start to unpack that, it's people who are using government accessed healthcare, or maybe they have social security benefits, and the more you interact with government, the more you hate it, and the more frustrated you are by it, and, and maybe this he is the frustration vote to some degree. That goes, that goes into one of the great support lines for Trump, and I'm not making this one up, folks. Get your grubby government hands off of my Medicare. I think that was I think that was a myth. It's it's it I actually tried to find that I've seen I've so seen it. I good. saw it. I saw it. I saw, I saw the, the sign. <laughs> I have seen the sign, but I, I I'm not quite sure that I trust that that was true. If it is, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Yeah, no, it really doesn't. Um, but but you know the other the other thing about uh, you know I went back. I've read Campaign Trail seventy two so, so so many times, and and I really. And I, I remember I remember talking to Hunter about this, that how tempting it must have been to change some of the more embarrassing things, because he has predictions throughout, some of which are dead on and, and some of which his uh, optimism took over. And I think about that all the time. I, I think about um, I can almost hear Hunter when people say, well, they used to say it about Clinton, that that he's like Nixon or, or this person's like Nixon. But Hunter would point out that, yeah, well, when you do that, you should always remember that he won 49 out of 50 states. I mean, I think, and I think that when people are talking about Trump, Trump is Nixon. Okay, fine. But Nixon won 49 out of 50 states. And, it, you know, Turkle, not a bad interviewer, as it turns out, asked him, said, have the Hells Angels taken over? And so you've got to kind of ask yourself now, you know, what? The Hell's Angels certainly have not taken over, but I mean, is there a certain ethos to the of the Hell's Angels, the the defiance that that is starting to take over, and and really, I mean, what and I guess ultimately what's to be done. Uh, my my favorite rumor of the day is that uh, Nikki Haley drops out and runs on the no labels to uh, pull Republican votes from Trump. Well, let's let's address that for a second because the the thing that was most fascinating to me is that before the Iowa caucuses, you knew something was majorly up because Joe Manchin managed somehow, some way to make three out of the four national Sunday morning talk shows. He came out, he did a trifecta, and he's talking about Americans together. He sounded exactly like a candidate. He said he was making his decision after CP Tuesday, but he was, it was pretty much, he had concluded what most people had concluded the Republican race is over. And that was before Iowa. That was when it looked, still looked like Nikki Haley could pull out a second place and Trump might be below 50. And he well, sounded yeah, like... Yeah, but I mean, it's... You know, yeah. it's not over. I mean, New Hampshire is crazy. I mean, New Hampshire might go anyway. And you're also going to get some crossover. I mean, the Democrats having banned in Iowa and New Hampshire... New Hampshire is one of those states where you can cross over. So you might have Democrats crossing over to try to, to hold back and Trump. At this point, it would take Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley wanted needed Ron DeSantis, though, to drop out. And he's not. I mean, he, the second place finishes, as anemic as it was, was still in second place. Um, and he's heading into New Hampshire. And so she's way ahead. She's within single digits of Trump in New Hampshire, if the polls are to be believed. 
And that's partially on independents and Democrats who are supporting her. Unfortunately, that whole situation falls apart in South Carolina where you can't do that. And that's and, and here's what I, why I make the prediction about this. I was hoping Nikki Haley would be strong in Iowa. She's, Trump was still going to win. But say Trump's at 47 and Nikki Haley's um, at 25 and DeSantis is at 19. So it, was, it was doable there for a little while. She goes into New Hampshire. She beats Trump with independence. And then she goes into her home state having won two and having a momentum. And she poses to voters who voted for her previously in most cases. Hey, we have a shot of, an, of a South Carolina president. You, you basically do the whole hometown thing. I know you like Donald Trump, but support the, the hometown girl who you love anyway. And she has a trifecta, and that takes them into Super Tuesday. That's not going to happen now. And so if you're Nikki Haley, you're, 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 you're counting on New Hampshire, but you have no sure path to say, I'm running the table, get on board by the time you get to South Carolina. And that's a real problem. And that's why I think Manchin is serious at this point. Um, the, the most important thing that happened prior to Iowa that so few people paid attention to was who's funding Nikki Haley, start with? The Koch brothers and their network. $30 million is created in a super PAC for whoever is going to be the no-labels candidate, and with a pledge that that will go up to $300 million in the super PAC. Now, super PAC money is private, and you don't know. It's unreported, and it's so and so forth. And guess who actually made that pledge? Mr. Koch. Well, I mean, the, the assumption that you would, you would get a certain amount of money, I think, is there. I, I think that uh, if you... No, I mean, I, that he would fund somebody against Donald Trump as a third-party candidate, just like he's funded Nikki Haley. That's the point. He and his network. It's a little bit reassuring that, that there are people in Wayne Ewing's wonderful movie about uh, the 76 primary, where they're talking about Ronald Reagan will be the end of democracy as we know it. You know, there are people who would argue that to this day, but I, I would argue that it probably is not. So my question to you, and since, you know, you have to get your, your predictions down in advance, would, would Haley, would she take 5% of Republican votes out of Trump? Would she take, or would she give Republicans who would not like it, the PJO work Republicans that would say, no. I'm going to vote for the Democrat, even though I don't like it, because I don't want to vote for Trump. Well, here's uh, here's would, here's. Would you take those? Well, the, what I when I had this actual conversation with one of the foremost political consultants in the country the other night, a guy by the name of, um, you know, it, it, I should not name him. Actually, I just I, I'm stopping myself on saying. Well, let's that. not get people in trouble. Yeah, because let's this is this is. But, but and, and we were having this conversation. You know, does it elect Trump? Does it elect Biden? And I said, you know, the no-labels ticket, especially if it's topped with a Republican who has a certain degree of appeal, Nikki Haley, Romney, somebody like that. I said, the interesting part about that is I'm not sure how much of the Republican vote it takes and any more than it takes the Democratic vote. But here's what it does do. Republicans and Democrats have two very different types of coalitions, so Republican coalition are people that are much more cohesive because you have different constituencies 
that really don't have a problem with the other constituency. They just don't get in the way. So you have military voters, tax cut voters, pro-lifers, evangelicals. You know, you've got you get people, and very rarely do those different elements come into contact. It happens from time to time, the Tom Tuberville holding up military promotions over the abortion issue, but it's very rare that the different constituencies, you know, pro-life voters don't really care about environmental regulation, tax cut voters don't really care about military policy, military voters don't really care about the, as long as everybody gets what they want, they don't care. Democrats have a much bigger coalition, but you have essentially voters that get in each other's way. So if you're an upper middle class, lower upper class, sort of social liberal voter, you have different constituencies than a labor voter who has different constituencies than environmental voters. Labor and environmental are often at each other's loggerheads. You've got different... So you, you have a much more likely, but it's more voters. Republicans do really well when they have somebody who kind typically, this is historically, 72, Nixon is a perfect example, who sort of hits the major policy points and kind of doesn't offend anybody in the different constituencies. Democrats do really well when they have an inspirational figure who doesn't really talk about specifics of policy. I, the living embodiment of that is Barack Obama, who you, nobody knew what the heck he stood for, but everybody loved him because he was so inspiring, you know, dare to change, so on and so forth. Change what? We have no idea, but it sounds good. The difference is, who elects a president? Republicans typically get two-thirds of the independent vote when they win the White House. The independents are usually voters who vote one way in, in the presidential election and then will vote for the other party in the uh, midterms. And that is always that is usually how it's been. It was all that way up until this last midterm where independents who, who went for Biden voted essentially st- either stayed home or voted for the Democrats because Trump just turned them off. What happens if, let's say, whoever the third, the no labels candidate is, if he gets two thirds of independents along with taking a third of Republicans and a third of Democrats, the fact is he has, he's hurt Trump, but he's not hurt Trump by taking Republicans. He's hurt Trump by taking independents. And that's important because the thing that we're not talking about is the fact that Biden is going to have a, a challenge from the left from Jill Stein, who last, who in 2016, when she ran, got 10,000 votes in Pennsylvania. And Curtis Robinson, how many votes did Trump beat Biden by? I, I think about 10,000. 10,000. It's not, yes. yeah, it, it, no Jill Stein, he wins. How much did Biden, uh, I mean, uh, Trump, yeah, Biden beat Trump, 10,000. Um, how much did he, uh, Trump beat Hillary Clinton, 10,000? And it's basically that third. So, Biden's. If there's no the point is the margins are so small. Exactly. So Biden's already at a disadvantage because you have a challenge from the left. So you need a challenge from the center or those independent voters. I don't think go to Biden. I think what happens is Trump gets some of the counter reaction votes, but I think to some extent that they're they're the wild card in this election. Now the problem is. Manchin on Sunday morning said he's not going to run unless he's a chance of winning. He's not a spoiler. I don't think any serious candidate is going to not do it. They, they, want, they, they want that moment that uh, Ross Perot had where the polls show that he was equal to the other two candidates at 40% or whatever it was. 
And, um, and, and the, why is this important? Well, in 72, you had George Wallace as a third-party candidate. What did Wallace want? Wallace wanted to throw this in the House. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. If No Labels claims one or two states, the margins are so close that in theory, what if the state is, for example, um, West, West Virginia probably won't go, but let's, let's use an example of New Hampshire where there's a huge independent vote. You take, you take four or five electoral votes off the board, Trump wins Pennsylvania, you know, because the, the Malahela Valley or whatever happens. You suddenly are in a situation where this goes into the House and every state votes as one. And so you've got, you've got a situation where if you're a spoiler, you, you're, you're doing the math in a different way than anybody's done since when? 1972. George Wallace did not think he could become president. George Wallace thought he could choose the president in the House of Representatives. But don't you think there's going to be like an enormous amount of pressure on Democrats of uh, the, the secondary Democrats, whether it's um, Green Party or uh, Cornell West or others? Don't you think there's going to be an extreme amount of pressure for them to drop out? Sure. That doesn't mean they're going to. The, the reason why they were not on the ticket in 2020 is because the state parties managed to get them excluded, which they, could, they, they're not, they haven't been able to do this time for a variety of reasons. But I think it's more basic. Um, there isn't an American election. You could, you could argue we almost had that in 1980 with John Anderson, where things were up to us. But I think a better example is... Who was who uh, in the whole world? What one other world leader of a democracy, not a dictatorship, is Trump often equated to? And that's the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson went into that election, and no one thought it's it's a parliamentary system; it's not direct, but no one thought it could. But it was one where you saw a third party um, really running against it. And what happened? It shifted the votes in the northern. Uh, what you know, states, the Rust Belt of Britain, the the northern counties of that were pro Brexit, the Yorkshire and um, in Manchester areas, and it went through. If I'm Donald Trump, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what I can win a head to head election against Biden because he's being challenged on the left and I'm not being challenged on the right. The only thing that could actually endanger that, and this is the whole sort of circuitous point I'm making, is that somebody in the center is getting enough independence that essentially they're not going to Biden to make up the difference. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I, I see exactly what you mean, and I, I see the parallels to 72 as well. But uh, And you're right. I mean, Wallace, we, we think about Perot as the, the, the most recent example. Wallace is probably a better example. Perot got... 19% of the vote, but Perot didn't get a single um, electoral vote. None. But, you know, and, and we should point out that he was polling equal with the parties until he dropped out and then came back in. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really remarkable that he ended up with 19% of, of, of vote. But, uh, man, so what I think what's clear, and I'm staring over at the clock here, is that... Uh, we're off and running. We're and, off and running. And New and Hampshire's right around the corner. 
and so after New Hampshire, I'm, I keep thinking of this. Um, we're gonna we're we're gonna have a pretty good idea of whether I mean Trump wins New Hampshire, it's over. If Nikki Haley doesn't totally triumph in New Hampshire, it's over. Or if Ron DeSantis doesn't, you know, I, mean, I, I can't. I still at this point, and I guess. He, when you spent $123 million in Iowa, and I think he spent something like $23 million in South Carolina, when you start, it's over, it's $200 million has been spent at this point. When you spend that much money, you can't really drop out before any votes are cast. But if you're DeSantis, you got to be wondering, you know, what is your pathway? It's what, what kind of miracle you're looking for? And so, I don't know. We shall see. But it's, uh, yeah, for those people who, were convinced in 1972 that Nixon would be taken out. I uh, hate to tell you this, but um didn't work out that way. No. <laughs> no, it did not. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, w- I would encourage uh, the Hunter fans out there, get out, get out your, uh, you know, <laughs> go out to the garage and find your copy of Campaign Trail 72 and uh, let's, let's draw the parallels and, and, and seek the wisdom because it's, it's very interesting. It's, um, uh, uh, for the political junkie, it's it's both parallels and not. The other the other thing you really notice that jumps out at you is that was a campaign that was many 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 things. One of the things that the parties have done is they have front loaded this. So March five, half the delegates will be selected. Yeah, that's why everybody says Super Tuesday because frankly, it's done. I mean, the only way that anything continues, I mean, Nikki Haley's entire strategy was win the first three. And then when you get to March, you know, Trump's going to do well on Super Tuesday, but you're alive enough to be able to knock in and then you can fight this all the way to Hawaii, you know, what is it, four weeks before the convention. Um, yeah, that, that that's not happening now. So <laughs> that's that's over. But, uh, you know, we shall see what happens. I'm going to tell you right now, expect a no-labels candidate, expect it either as Manchin, um, uh, Larry Hogan, or if she gets... Mess- Look, I don't know if it'll be Nikki Haley. I think I, I, I do think one criticism Ron DeSantis made of Nikki Haley is probably accurate. There's a reason why she hasn't taken out Trump, because I do think she f- views the vice presidency as a fallback position. And I think Trump does want a woman on the ticket with him to inoculate him against charges. And um, I think that's going to look very attractive for those that say, well, Trump won't do that. She ran against him. I point out that he begged and pleaded for the former governor of Ohio um, just went blank, uh, to, to be on the ticket before, and, and only chose Pence when he didn't get on there. So it's it, Trump is used to having a you know saying hey well, I we also need to show him up with uh evangelicals and i don't know that he needs that now no i mean he's got the other thing by the way um there is something that i will say for those one other parallel of 72 a lot of the people that are supporting wallace are they're they're, they're religious voters but they're also non-religious they're sort of their value, quote, values voters, and some of those values we wouldn't particularly consider valuable today, like, you know, support of segregation, but they're voters that are resistant to change and have, and are sort of hearkening to an older America, good, bad, or indifferent. One of the analyses that was done, one of the few decent ones out of the New York Times, and 
was the fact that when, when the Times did not talk to each other like it was an echo chamber, was a warning that was made. It was a particularly good article. And what it said was, many of Trump's evangelical voters are not churchgoers. And people were like, what? He said, they're people who maybe were raised religious, maybe raised it, but they don't go to church anymore. They don't really do this. There's a cultural resistance and a fear of change in America. And the point of the article was that you may think because America's getting less religious that there are fewer of those voters. He said, all that's happening is America, people that are not religious are, in many cases, very much opposed to the radical levels of change as they see it are happening in America. You know, the the transgender issue, love it or hate it, I, I actually don't think it's as big a deal either way. 57 underage kids were talking about a gender reassignment ceremony last year. That's, that's out of 330 million people, it's not even a rounding error. But the fact of the matter is that issue alone and other issues, and you match in inflation, major issue in 72, bigger issue in 1980, you match in the economy, um, you put all that together and you have people who said, my, he- my country is going to hell in a handbasket and I'm voting against anybody who's willing to take radical change against it. And guess what? Joe Biden ain't the change candidate. Ironically, Donald Trump, who used to be president, is. Whether he yeah. changes anything or not is immaterial in, in to how they see it. And there are a lot more of those voters who may not have stepped inside of a church in five years, but they vote on values that they consider traditional. And that's a lot of Americans. So Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot to unpack in one thing. But yeah, I think I think you I think you make a point. It's it's so odd that it's both change and not change. It's it's changing the trajectory as much as it's changing uh, uh, other parts, and uh, and I do think that that the analogy, well, the parallel really to to Nixon holds up. And the other thing that Nixon did in '72 was he was he was unattainable to the press. This was also true in '68 that he, he did not make himself available at all, and he stayed away. And I think one of the great things, uh, if you're a Trump supporter, is that he's not been visible. He's been off Twitter and other things. I think I think it will hurt him as he becomes more and more visible and as more and more people see him and realize, oh, yeah, that's right, I remember him. Well, because, you know, he's become abstract again. One of, one of the voters at the caucuses, and for those that know now, we promise to say this later, a caucus... For those that have never been to a caucus, when you have a caucus, people appear together in a room, an auditorium, a gymnasium, a large room. And um, each of the candidates' representatives will give a speech, and then you you cast your ballots for that person you sort of publicly. It's You write them on a piece of paper, but you go up to each of the, the three different places. One of the things that happens in a caucus, though, is that people, especially in Iowa, will often change their, their, who they're going to vote for, who they're going to support, based on the speeches that they hear. And one of Nikki Haley's failings was she didn't have a precinct captain at each precinct, the way Trump and DeSantis did, saying, hey, vote for my candidate. Um, that's probably why she didn't end up in second place. But the other interesting, and why I'm, I'm bringing this up about this, is sometimes people don't know who they're voting for until the, they walk into that room. And one guy said, well, have you voted in a caucus before? He says, yeah, I was 
voted in caucus, you know, uh, eight years ago, four years ago. I said, uh, who did you vote for? He said, well, I voted originally for Donald Trump. And then I, that's when I, then I started finding out what he was all about in tw- Twitter and I grew to hate him. And so sometimes public exposure doesn't. Here's the problem. Name me one journalist who's on Truth Social. Tucker Carlson. Yeah, great. <laughs> one. This <laughs> is the one guy. In, in other words, no newspaper reporter you know. Nobody is, is watching. They used to put when they were on Twitter, they put his tweets up. When's the last time you saw a Trump tweet put up that wasn't very specific? Never. It's not since he's yeah, been Trump. They, 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 they have cured. We'll see if it stays cured. But uh, that. And well, I, yeah, so. I will say this. We've had our opening kickoff. Uh, it was great fun to toggle between Iowa caucuses and the NFL playoffs. <laughs> and for some of us, it doesn't doesn't get a lot better. All right, Curtis, we will continue this in the next couple of weeks, post New Hampshire and then into South Carolina, and we'll see how this race forms up. And we, and we, and, sh- we shall gather some some hunter stories from New Hampshire. We shall indeed. We also are going to get back to regular hunter gatherer stories. We've got some interesting stories coming up of Hunter in New Orleans and a few other Hunter stories that we're going to be sharing in a couple. So it won't all be politics. Oh, that's right. We have to check on the Sean Penn connection. Yes, we found out about Hunter staying with Sean Penn in New Orleans in a house right next to Commander's Palace. And we're going to try to investigate this never-before-told story of Hunter in the pool house with the rats. We will only say that it involves rats. Or reported rats. It's great, man. We leave with a teaser. All right. We'll see you, folks, in the next couple of weeks. And this is, of course, as always, Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. Well, the southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share. Crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that.